All right, we are um, in First Samuel still. I believe Matt last week covered Hannah, and so I'm picking up in chapter two of First Samuel, and we're going to go all the way through uh, chapter seven of First Samuel. Um, but we're also going to steal a little bit from Second Samuel. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna look ahead, and we are going to look at. Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, along with uh, the material here. The organizing principle being that we are looking at the way that the people of Israel worshipped God in this period. Okay, The way that they treated uh, their relationship with God. You might say the way that they, uh, their religion, okay, and we are going to see three episodes here, largely centered around uh, the Ark of the Covenant and the way that the Ark of the Covenant was, was handled. And in each episode, we are going to see uh, a way that it goes wrong uh, and also a way that it goes right. So the first episode that we're going to look at is uh, this debacle around... Uh, Hophni and Phineas, the sons of Eli. The second episode that we're going to look at is uh, another debacle where the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And then the third story uh, where we're going to pull from, from 2 Samuel is the episode where David tries uh, to take the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem and establish uh, the religion and the worship of Israel there in Jerusalem. And as we all know, uh, his first attempt uh, is a third debacle. Uh, somebody dies, he gives up, he gets mad at God, uh, and the ark just sits there where he left it for, for a while. Okay, so let's start uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at verses uh, 12 through 17. This is immediately after uh, Hannah's desperate, uh, or not her desperate prayer, her, her prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude uh, towards God. It says, now the sons of Eli. So right there we, we're in contrast uh, with Samuel. Okay, uh, We've got the story of Hannah, and now immediately it's like, now the sons of Eli. Okay, Contrast. We're worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priests to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight 
of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay. So a couple things I want to I want to draw out here. All right. The sons of uh, Eli do not fear the Lord. All right. And I think we're we're going to see in all three of these episodes that where things go wrong in the worship of God, it's because the the worshipers do not fear the Lord. Okay? It says here that they they treat the offering of God with contempt. If we look uh, ahead at, at um, uh, verse verse 30, okay, God says by, by way of an unnamed prophet to Eli, he says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Okay, so the, the central crime of the sons of Eli is that they don't honor God. They, they take this thing that God set up that he wanted to have with his people, a worship and a sacrifice, and they treat it as something, something light, something unimportant. Uh, they, they despise it. That word despise, uh, that, in English, that comes from, from Latin, de spicio, okay? Uh, de, in this context, being, meaning down from, spicio, to see, to look, okay? So to despise something means to look down upon it, to view it as something that's not terribly important, okay? And I, I almost get the, the impression that the, the sons of Eli were we're coming to this, and they're like, hey, we want some meat. If, it, if the fat gets burned off, uh, we, we won't get you know, a really good choice piece of meat. Let's just take it. And you can imagine somebody uh, saying, eh, but this, you know, this is serious. This is, this is the sacrifice of God. This is something important. This is something that God said. Nah, it's nothing. It's no big deal. Right? You don't, you don't really believe all that old stuff, do you? Right? That's the attitude that I, that I imagine them taking. Um, this is reminiscent, I think, of uh, in, in Psalms, in a couple places, it says that the fool says in his heart that there is not no God. He won't see what I'm doing. It's no big deal. God will not hate my sin. God will not take this seriously. Don't worry about it. Okay? So they despise it. They treat it with contempt. Contrast this uh, with verse 35. God says in the same prophecy, he says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Okay, uh, I think this is a, is a reference to Samuel, who's going to be uh, raised up in the next chapter. Um, but at a, at a deeper level, I think Samuel is a type of Christ. Okay, 
and that God is is talking about the way that a that a priest should be the way that the, that he wants his worship to go okay it's a couple of points notice God's going to raise this up for himself okay becoming the right kind of priest is something that God accomplishes it's not something that we can just sort of clue in and and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it right now. All right, he says, I'm going to raise up a priest a, a, for myself, a faithful priest. Okay. Built into that phrase, though, too, is that the priest is for God. The priest does not exist for himself. And he doesn't exist even for the people. Okay. The priest exists for God, okay, and and uh, I, you can think back to um, what Matt shared last week with with Hannah, and the idea that Eli, that sorry Samuel was dedicated to God. His whole existence was for God. He was set apart for God. Okay. Third point here is that it says that God will build him a sure house. Okay, I don't think God is um, opposed to Samuel having something. He's not opposed to his priests having something. He wants to bless his priests. Okay, In the, uh, in the Levitical law, which we studied several months ago, okay, there's provision made. Okay, God explicitly gives instructions for how the priests are supposed to get meat from the offering. Okay, there were certain kinds of offerings that were supposed to be burned whole. There were certain kinds of offerings, though, that the, that the priests could take a certain share from, and that was, that was their food. Okay, uh, that, that was meat, that was also grain. Okay, God, uh, gave explicit instructions in the Levitical law, for where the priests could have their own land, okay, and how they could have an existence, how they could make a living. God wants to bless them, okay? Uh, so I don't think the point here, I, I don't walk away from this thinking, oh, what's wrong with Eli and, sorry, Hophni and Phineas is that they were selfish. The main problem was that they took something for themselves. And the main thing that God hates is when you enjoy anything at all or have anything at all, <laughs> okay? No, God loves you. God loves Hophni and Phineas. He was okay with them taking the meat the way that, that he uh, had ordained it. The problem was that they grabbed for it. They snatched for it, okay? They took something for themselves without thinking at all about the way that God wanted to do this thing. Okay? Uh, they didn't fear the consequences. Okay? They despised it. They treated it with contempt. Okay? Uh, I, I, you guys saw my, my three wonderful children up here just now. Um, this happens all the time with kids. Right? Anybody who has kids will know that you actually want to give them a Christmas present, <laughs> right? I mean, I love, I love my kids. I love the experience of 
giving my son a set of Legos. Okay? Um, I, I gave Autumn a peppermint today, and I enjoyed that because I love her. Okay? But kids are like psychopaths. <laughs> okay? <laughs> they will plot and work out these complicated machinations to try to get this thing that they want, and they just like will not believe you when you say, yeah, you can have that, but you got to wait. I want you to have that, but, you know, you got to do this, this, and this. Okay? They'll find a way to steal, to snatch, to get in there. Why? Because they're sons and daughters of Adam. <laughs> okay? This is human nature. And we see that coming out uh, in Hophni and Phineas in an extreme way. Uh, one of the things I wanted to point out here is notice we, we learn here in uh, verses 22 through 25 um, they're also sleeping with the with the women at the at the entrance. It's a second sin. Okay, but something that strikes me as interesting is that that, that sexual licentiousness is almost a, uh, a, a sort of an afterthought or an aside. It just further flesh out their character. What God seems to be really focused on here is the way that they treated His church. Okay. I think that I wanted to remark on that because I think in, in our day and age, even, even after the sexual revolution, even though we are probably living in a society that is more sexually permissive than, uh, than any society since the Romans, okay, um, nevertheless, we are also probably more scandalized by affairs, sexual sin, in, in the leadership than any society ever, probably more than, than the Romans. Okay. And yet we're not scandalized by leadership in the church that treats the worship of God and what is holy as a light thing. That doesn't scandalize us. When was the last time, you know, you opened, opened a newspaper or or Christianity Today, you know, headlines, you know. Famous preacher doesn't take communion seriously enough. Right? That's, that's not a thing. We're not scandalized by that. But we should be if we're, if we're steeped in the scriptures here. Okay, let me move on to the, to the second episode. 1 Samuel 4, 3. So before, before this, the uh, people of Israel go out to battle against the, the Philistines. Standard thing that happens over and over again for the next, like, thousand pages of this book. <laughs> okay? There's a battle, them the Philistines. They lose. Okay? And they, they lose how many men? They lose four, about 4,000 men. Okay? Uh, minor defeat. Now... What was, the, what was one of the last times that we read about the people of Israel suffering a somewhat minor defeat like this? I, my mind goes right back to the Battle of Ai that we studied a couple months ago. 
Okay, the uh, people of God were having victory after victory. Things seemed like they were going pretty well. Uh, they defeated Og, they defeated Sihon, then they defeated uh, Jericho, and then it's just like on to the next thing. Okay, there's a tiny town Ai, we're going to take it. But they lost. Why? Because they didn't consult God. Remember that sermon? Billy gave a great sermon on this. They didn't consult God. Okay, so here again, the people of Israel uh, lose. Verse 3, it says, And when the troops came to the camp, the, il- the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord defeated us today? They don't know. They, ne- they didn't consult God, apparently. There's no record before this of them consulting God about the battle. It doesn't seem at all like they're in touch with the will of God or like this battle was subordinated to the purposes of God. And they're they're just shocked. Why has God done this to us? What's going on? Why have we suffered defeat? Now, if you're someone who has read the book of Judges, okay, you should know. You should know why the the people of Israel suffered defeat. It's because they are walking in sin. We're going to learn in chapter 7, they'd taken their idols back up again. They'd turned away from, from the Lord. Okay, They should know that. And yet, here we see the elders, the leadership of the nation, scratching their heads. What's going on? Why has this happened? I don't know. Okay? So they get a bright idea. Why has God done this? Well, I know. I got an idea, Joe. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Again, they didn't... They don't pray about it. They don't ask God, should we do this? But more importantly, they seem to have this conception about the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, God gives explicit instructions about how it's supposed to be moved, how it's supposed to be covered, how it's supposed to be kept in the Holy of Holies, all of that. They think that they can take this holy thing of God, and just move it about. Treat it as a sort of um, national rallying symbol. And I think the implication is that they're exercising um, magical thinking. Okay, here's how magical thinking works. Okay, uh, people, who be- who, people who believe in magic. This is, this is a real thing. Okay, people who practice magic think that by doing certain rituals or by using certain objects or by having a, you know, amulet or, you know, some special words, you know, on a piece of sheepskin, you know, tucked into your back pocket or something, doing those things is going to compel or force entities in the spiritual realm to, to do something for you. 
Okay, so you're in love with a woman and she doesn't love you. And so you want to make that love happen. So, you know, you grind up some powder, you know, and you put it in the in the amulet juice. I don't know what kind of juice you put in an, in an amulet, you know, and you, you wear it around your neck. And somehow that's supposed to make the spirit world bend to your wishes. And now this this woman's going to fall in love with you. You got an enemy. You know, your boss is just nasty and he's been mean to you and whatnot. And you can't, you can't really get back at him in the natural realm because, you know, you're a scaredy cat and, uh, you know, you're afraid of confrontation and whatnot. And, and, you know, you can't have a conversation with him. So you, you know, get a voodoo doll, you know, and you make it look like him and you stick it full of needles. And, you know, that's supposed to make him start bleeding profusely from, you know, random holes in the night. Okay. That's exactly what they're doing with the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant is their lucky rabbit's foot. It's their voodoo doll. They got these Philistines. They want to defeat the Philistines. I know. Let's let's bring out this holy thing, this relic, and let's make God serve our purposes. So again, the failure here is they they don't fear God. They don't stop and ask themselves, hmm, you know, maybe the reason that we fell before our enemies is just like the reason that we've fallen before our enemies the last 16 times. (laughs) Right? They think, I know why we fell before our enemies. We didn't have our voodoo doll. Let's bring it out. And the second problem is they're treating something that God has said is holy with contempt. They're treating it as something common that they can just bring out into the open, that they can just expose, and that they can use for their own purposes. Okay? And what happens? They go out and they suffer a bigger defeat. Okay? And a lot more people die. Hophni and Phinehas die. It's the fulfillment of, of the prophecy. They were there. When Eli hears about it, it says he falls over his chair backwards, dead. And when his daughter hears about it, she goes into labor, has a baby, and they name the baby Ichabod. Right? What a dis- disgusting sounding name, Ichabod. Right, For the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. They've lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. It's gone. They've screwed up. Okay. Now, when we hear about the Philistines, okay, look at how the Philistines treat the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, go, they, they take it into their temple. They, they treat it as something, you know, important. Probably still with some magical thinking. Probably actually a lot of, a lot of magical thinking. Okay. They put it in the Temple of Dagon. In the morning, Temple of Dagon's fallen face down. Okay. And they're like, oh, what's going on? They set it back up. Next day, boom. Dagon is face down again with his head cut off and his, his arms broken down. Or broken off. Okay. And it says, to this day, the Philistines don't tread on the threshold 
of the Temple of Dagon because that's where the parts of Dagon had like touched. Listen to that. The Philistines have a greater sense of reverence, of awe, of fear, of caution before their God that, of course, is nothing more than, you know, a statue with a demonic power behind it, okay. They've got a, a, a more robust attitude of fear of the holy than the people of Israel do, okay. And they clue in, okay, look at, look at uh, ver- chapter 5, verse 7, okay. They clue in. It says, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, I love that phrase. They looked around and they're like, oh, this is so good. Dagon's down and, uh, you know, we're starting to get tumors. Doesn't the King James say hemorrhoids? Did I just make that up? Hemorrhoids? Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> so they're getting like like tumors, okay? It says, it says, it says, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, right? Like they're looking around, they're like, Ugh. we don't like this. This is serious, okay? They said the ark of God of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Dagon. <laughs> they they get it more than the people of Israel. It, I, I, I'm not I'm not saying they were you know Christians before Christ or something. I, I think they've got a very dim view, and you can tell kind of in the way they they call their wise men, you know, and their wise men set up this whole thing with the with the ox and the cart, you know, and if the ox does this and and that or, uh, or the heifer or whatever. So so they've got a very dim view of how things really work with God. Okay. But they have more sense than the people of Israel because they see how things were. Okay? They see the situation. They see that, I don't know this God. I don't know what he wants. I don't know how this all works. But I see that there's something holy here and that our lives are falling apart and we are being cursed. We are being oppressed because of the presence of this holy thing, and we got to act on this. We have to take this seriously. We've got to get this thing out of our city. Uh, we can't be around this. This is holy. Okay? So they put it on the cart. The cart goes straight back to Israel. Okay? And the people, the people rejoice. Okay, so pick up in in chapter 7. I want to focus here on chapter 7. This is really the center of of what I want to say tonight. We're just going to go work our way through chapter 7. It says, And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. 
And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Oh. Okay, so a couple things to, to note here. First, look at this phrase. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is a classical Christian virtue that we see here that I think has fallen into disrepute and ill use. And that is the virtue of lamentation, the virtue of contrition, of sorrow over one's sins. Okay, I think in America, at least, uh, the, the spheres of Christianity that I'm familiar with, uh, we want to we get past sin as fast as possible. Right? Uh, we want to get back to the happy place as fast as possible. Okay? But I think something that has been taught by Christians down through the ages and that is a very important part of, of a disciple's life is lamenting after the Lord. Realizing that there has been a defeat and that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken and that something has gone deeply wrong. And because of that, having enough sense now, well, they didn't have it before, but now having enough sense to come before God and to weep. Second thing to note, look at what Samuel says. He says, if, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. So this returning, Samuel says, look, th th there's a condition here. Okay, I'm not just going to pray for you. I'm not just going to make everything better. There's an if. If you are really ready to return to the Lord. So that means coming back to him, realizing that we've drifted away, realizing that we've, we've gone the wrong direction. Come back to him. And then second, do that with a whole heart. Do that with all your heart. Not, not a little partial, kind of, sort of commitment to God all the way down to the bottom of who you are put it you know sliding forward all of your chips in the poker table with with god because you're playing poker with that's a bad metaphor he says if that's how it's how it is if you're really returning to god with your whole heart then put away the foreign gods and the ostrich from among you and direct choose to point your heart in the right direction. Did you guys know that you can direct your heart? 
I think a lot of times we, we think about our heart as just sort of these emotions, things that happen to us rather than, than something that, with which we do something. Okay? But it says he, he tells them here to direct their heart, to choose to orient their heart back towards the Lord, to point it in that direction. And serve him only. Choose, Samuel says, to put yourself under the lordship of God. Don't make him your little magical talisman when you go into battle and make him serve you. You choose to serve him. Okay? And seek out his purposes. All that it is in his mind, all that is in his heart. That's what was said about Samuel. That's what God wants for his whole people. In their worship of him, in the way that they conduct their battles, in all of it. Now look at this. He says, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So again... I don't think the problem, I I could imagine someone preaching a sermon just on chapters 5 and 6. I've never heard anybody preach this sermon, but I could imagine somebody preaching a sermon uh, and, and say the problem is that the people of Israel wanted God to give them victory. The people, the problem is that the people of Israel were asking something of God rather than just surrendering to God and allowing God to do, you know, whatever God's going to do. Okay. I don't I don't think that because I don't think that it's wrong to pray. I don't I don't think that the the problem what was that they wanted victory and that they were hoping that God would help them to achieve that victory. God himself here in, in what follows does help them achieve victory and he wants he wants to bring victory to them. But it's got to be on his terms. And you can't, you can't use God like a magic talisman. It's got, that victory has to proceed out of a living relationship with God where you've returned to God, you've put away your idols, and you've chosen to serve God. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep reading. He says, Then Samuel, ga- then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So there's a confession of sin. It's an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. They take it seriously. They fast. Okay, It's not just some quick, light thing. They, they take pains to make this, make this serious. They say, and we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, notice that that's, in, that's an entirely different attitude. In both places, 
in chapter 4 and in chapter 7, the people of Israel want God to do something for them. They want victory. They want to defeat the Philistines. Okay? That's not the difference. The difference is the entire attitude that they have towards God. One is a cavalier attitude that, that doesn't pray, but just thinks that they can use God. This attitude is an attitude of fasting and seeking God and knowing God and, and realizing a dependency on God and crying out to him. Does that contrast make sense? Okay. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Kar. The Lord thundered on that day. The living God showed up. You see, I think when we treat the worship of God as a kind of magic talisman, all that you'll get is silence and a dead relic. But when you seek the living God, you find him. And he answers with thunder. He answers with fire. He answers with action. If you're wondering why your spiritual life seems very sort of silent and cold and there's no living God that you've ever encountered, you might ask yourself about this. Do I treat religion, do I treat Christianity as a way of sort of, you know, magical thinking? Or do I come before the living God? Am I actually seeking the living God and, and submitting to his lordship? That's when you see him answer with thunder and with fire and with action. All right, let's skip down to Second Samuel. So flip ahead, chapter 6. This is, this is the next place that we really see the, the ark enter the, the center of the narrative. says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they cried, and sorry, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I don't even know what a castanet is. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? All right. The main thing that I I hope we can see here is that the ark of God is a deadly serious business. God takes this, this whole thing very seriously. Enough that he is willing to strike this man dead right there on the spot because he so much as touched it. And I also want to make clear that the God of the Old Testament is not a different God than the God of the New Testament. You see crazy claims like that when you read uh, Looney Tune academics sometimes. And I can say that because, you know, I'm one of them. Um, God is still this serious about his presence. He is still, to this day, this serious about holiness. He is willing to strike people dead where they stand for this kind of thing. This is still the God that we serve. And if we don't, if we don't take stock of that and appreciate that, we'll never understand what Jesus did on the cross. We will never understand the grace and the mercy of God. We will treat it with contempt we will treat it as something cheap Uh, and by doing so we will despise it we will look down upon it we will think it's something slight when it's not at all so let's look at at why this happened what what what's going on here okay the first thing that everybody points out when you when you read this passage is that very clearly the text says that they were carrying the ark on a cart Seems like an odd little detail. You might just, you know, read over that and think that it's not terribly that important. You know, just a thing thrown in there, just like the castanets. Okay. Um, at least I, I hope that the castanets aren't terribly important. I don't know what they are at all. Um, and it, does, does anybody know what a castanet is? So they were going around like this. And with liars. So they're like liars and trumpets and castanets. Okay, maybe that's an important detail, I guess. But the reason that this this cart is important is because in the Levitical law, God clearly specifies that the uh, Ark of God is to be carried on poles. Okay, he has an intention for the Ark. He has a specific way that it's supposed to be carried. Okay, now I don't understand the full reasons for why God would want the ark carried on poles, but the important thing is that he commanded it. He has a definite, specific way that he wants it to be done. And these guys are ad-libbing. They're winging it. And I don't know if they even had a conversation about how should we carry the ark. Okay. Um, but 
if they did, I imagine it going something similar to, to the, the Eli and, or sorry, Hophni and Phineas, saying, ah, no, it doesn't matter. God's a loving God. He probably doesn't care. It's no big deal how we carry the ark. I mean, the important thing's the ark, right? That's what really counts. That's what, you know, that's the most important thing. So who cares about small stuff? God does. God cares about the small stuff, or else he wouldn't have told them a specific way to do it. Okay. And they don't. They're, they're treating it as, as, as something light again. Okay. Now, the, the next thing that I want to point out about this episode is notice they're making merry before the Lord. They're, they're singing songs. They've got their lyres and their castanets. Okay. They also make merry the next time they bring the ark up, when everything goes right. Okay, so again, having a positive mood or a positive feeling about what's going on is not the deciding factor between the wrong way to do it and the right way to do it. Okay, and I think in our culture, a a major... uh, habit that we have is to evaluate the quality or the reverence of our worship by the way we feel about it, by whether or not we have rejoicing and, you know, positive woohoos, right? But I'll, I'll tell you right now, the way that we feel about the worship really doesn't tell us one way or another about the way God feels about the worship. Okay, apparently God did not like the first act of worship so much so that he killed a guy. He apparently did like the second act of worship because he blessed it. Okay, and in both cases, you have positive feelings. So I think we need to get past um, evaluating things by our subjective response and begin to evaluate things by the word of God by the way that God tells us things should be done. Okay. Um, I think that that is probably nowhere more relevant than in the way that we build our lives together in community. Okay. I think the natural, obvious place that people would want to go with this, this lesson to apply it is, you know, worship. And, and think, okay, you know, I, I realize that, you know, having a good subwoofer makes me feel, you know, more in tune with the spirit and worship. And I get that that's not really that important. Okay. That's an application. But I think at a deeper level in our community life, okay, certain patterns of interacting with each other might make us feel good. Okay. Say, hanging out, playing Halo on Friday night with the guys. Feels like good fellowship, right? power, you know, yeah, that was good times because I liked it. I had fun. Just because I liked it doesn't mean that that's the way God wanted us to build on that Friday night. Okay? On the flip side, certain patterns of, of us interacting uh, might feel make us feel kind of scummy or depressed or creeped out or whatever. Might just, just give us the willies. Okay? Um, openness, vulnerability, confession of sin, um, 
having that tough conversation uh, with, uh, you know, the guy that, that you're living with at the, at the discipleship house. Um, and so I think sometimes we'll have a tendency to say, you know, I've got kind of bad vibes about something, so we're, we're just not going to do it. Look, the, whether you have bad vibes about something or not really doesn't tell you at all about what God thinks about it, one way or the other. You might have bad vibes because it's bad. You might have bad vibes because it, you know subconsciously that it's going to cost you something, that you might have to change your life, or you might be the person in the wrong, or you just don't like confrontation, Right? So the way to figure out the way that we should live together is to go to the Word of God, see what it has to say. Submit ourselves to God rather than submitting ourselves to our own feelings. Amen? Okay. Next thing I want to point out here, okay, is uh, look look here at uh, verse 8. It says, David was angry. Because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. He got mad at God. And I think a lot of our our rage against God has to do with this. God, I mean, can can you imagine that moment? You know, they're going with the castanets. And the dude dies. Oh, silence bummer right don't we have that reaction a lot of times when when we get called or when something gets right god you you wrecked my party we were having a party we were having a good time praising you and serving you and worshiping you it was it was fun we were having a good time and you, ah, god you had to kill a guy He gets mad at God when I think really he should be he should be mad at himself. The anger should entirely be directed you look you're you're the one that that didn't consult God on how he wanted this to be done. You're the one that just went ahead with your own plan and started rejoicing and worshiping and calling it a good thing before you saw it the face of the Lord. But notice the next verse. So the first emotion that David experiences is anger. The second emotion that David experienced, I think, this is the beginning of repentance. It says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? I think that phrase, that day, is significant. Um, I don't know this. I haven't, uh, you know, done any scholarship to, to to verify this. But it seems to me that, that that phrase is inserted into the into the verse to signify that 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 was a turning point in the life of David. That before that day, and after that day, were fundamentally different. That because of that event, because of what happened, something changed in David. And from that day onward, he had a fear of God. And I think that's the fundamental thing that runs through all these stories, is that in the worship of the Lord, we need to fear God. I've heard in sermons before uh, that the fear of the Lord is more like, a, it's, you know, it's not really fear. You know, when the Bible says the fear of God, it's not, it's not fear, fear. It's respect, 
It's a healthy admiration. You can see a Charles Dickens character saying something like that. Now, I think the word fear means fear. Because this God just killed a guy for touching his ark. And that's the God that you worship. And if you're not terrified of that being, you're probably not thinking straight. He just he killed a guy for touching his ark. You should be scared of that. That should make you shake in your boots. Okay? And the immediate conclusion that David draws from that, that fear, I think, is the only rational conclusion that you can draw. When he sees what's going on, it, it kind of after that anger, the lights kind of come on. He says, how, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's when he gets it. And he sees, I can't be with this God. The Philistines got it. When they saw how it was, they said, we need to get this thing out of here. We cannot have this God around us. Because there is there is a big gap between us and him. And, and this God is dangerous for us. This God hurts us. This God will destroy us and our gods. And David gets this too. He says, I cannot be, be with this God. This God is holy, and I am unholy, and he is willing to kill me. And I can't treat this lightly. This is serious stuff. Okay, so the the ark, because of that, says that David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, which I think is maybe a little ironic, right? I, the ark can't dwell with me, so put it off on this Gittite. Which I've, I've heard that the slang expression of calling somebody a git comes from this, a gittite, because a non-Israelite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And all that belongs to him because of the the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. Okay, let's stop there. Notice slight difference in the wording here. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord. David's starting to take things seriously. Okay. And then when they had gone six steps, there's a sacrifice. So similarly with Samuel, what did he do differently? He sacrificed to God. Here David says, okay, he's, he, it's, it's been a long time. So he's had a stretch of, I think, several years 
to really meditate on this and chew on this and figure out what went wrong that day with Uzzah. Point one, there were no poles. There's the cart problem. But I think the more important problem is that there was no sacrifice. And here, he makes sacrifice. He realizes that there has to be an atonement for sin, for him to stand right before the Lord, and for the the holiness of God not to burst out from him. So he he realizes that this is a serious thing, and that, that the blood of a sacrifice has to be spilled. Amen? Okay, so quick. Uh, oh, and last, sorry, last point about, about this. It says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Okay, this verse gets preached on a lot in teachings on worship. Okay, but I, so I want to point out sort of two things at the opposite end of the spectrum here. First is... Notice, if you're going to preach on this verse, you better preach on the the castanets that went before. Okay. Uh, The the point, I don't think, is that we ought to be happy all the time, and God wants happy, and so happy, happy. Right? Because he was happy, you know, when things went wrong, too. Okay. But on the flip side, notice, even even though he's, he's now treating the ark with reverence, and there's a sacrifice, there's room for joy in that. And in fact, it seems to me that this is a deeper joy than they had before. It says here he danced with all his might. Okay, When we come to that place, I, I, I don't think the application is, okay, if you're going to fear the Lord and you're really scared of the Lord, then you better be you know, depressed and glum-faced all the time. I think the point is that when you truly fear the Lord, you come to learn a deeper joy in his presence on the other side of that. And then you can really let loose in worship because it's not this fake, shallow thing that exists only in your imagination. It springs out of a deep face-to-face encounter with the living God on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so... uh, Quick application. I want to call us to the fear of the Lord. I want to call us to taking the church, taking worship, taking communion, taking the scripture seriously. And to exercise extreme caution with our own bright ideas and our own quick, yeah, cool, let's just do it this way. It'll be fine. This will be great. Yeah, God, God doesn't care about that. No big deal. Catch yourself when you find that kind of attitude in your heart and remember Uzzah. Remember Hophni and Phineas. Remember the capture of the Ark of the Lord. Those all came from bright ideas. And return with your whole heart and serve the living God. Amen?